From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, you might think Republicans would take a breather after banning abortion in the states they control. But no, they've set their sights on a new target, no-fault divorce. Katha Pollitt will explain. But first, maybe you heard the news, Cornell West is running for president. Joan Walsh will comment in a minute. Cornell West should not be running for president. That's what a lot of our friends are saying, including Joan Walsh. She's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. She's also author of the book, What's the Matter with White People? And the co-producer of a wonderful documentary, The Sit-In, Harry Belafonte hosts The Tonight Show. She served as editor-in-chief of Salon for six years. She's been a commentator on MSNBC and CNN, and she's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the LA Times. We reached her today at home in Manhattan. Hi, Joan. Hi, John. Well, what do you think about Cornell West in general, setting aside for the moment the fact that he announced last week he's running for president? They're almost inseparable for me because I feel like he's been on kind of an odd ego trip that's destructive to the to what I think he truly values, which is greater income equality and less total power for capitalism. Um, you know, you and I have had many conversations about the flaws of the Democratic Party. They are real. They are many. But in this system of government, there are only two real parties. And if you decide to run a third party, you always take votes away from the party that's closest to you ideologically. And while I'm sure he would say that Democrats aren't close to him at all at this point, that's the party he might hurt. Although this run seems so ill-advised and ill-informed, it might not hurt anybody. So just to review, in his announcement, he said he's running as a third party candidate because, quote, Neither political party wants to tell the truth about Wall Street, about Ukraine, about the Pentagon, about big tech. And he told Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! last week, quote, the milquetoast neoliberal Democratic Party strikes me as being incapable of taking seriously the fundamental needs of poor and working people not just here, but around the world, close quote. Now, as you've said, we know these criticisms. We have a lot of these same criticisms, but we think the way to fight for this is inside the Democratic Party. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I was not a, a Bernie Sanders supporter, but I've supported both of his runs for the uh, nomination. And I think certainly in 2020, you can see that he had a very positive impact on Joe Biden, moving him from what I what is probably fair to call neoliberalism to a much more full-throated endorsement of Wall Street regulation, of social spending, forgiving student loans as much as possible, really becoming the most pro-worker, pro-struggling person, probably since FDR. I agree. I agree. You know, it wasn't just Bernie. It was also, it was the times, it was the, the, the situation, it was the pandemic. Uh, but Bernie Sanders' campaign certainly had an effect. And the people that Bernie Sanders brought into the Democratic Party likewise had an effect. And so I have said for a long time, 
if you don't like the Democrats, get inside, take it over, take it over locally, take it over at whatever whatever level. But you really can't make change from outside one of the two parties. Let's note that the Congressional Progressive Caucus has something like 100 members. So this is a substantial force inside the party. And as you say, Bernie had a lot to do with building that. He's had a lot to do with it. Being able to elect younger, more diverse people has had a lot to do with it. And so it's not the party that it was even under Barack Obama, to be honest. And I, you know, I was a, a supporter, a critical supporter, but the party has changed too. And I don't think it's bad. I think it's problematic, but I don't think it's bad. And I don't think it's doing nothing. And I don't think it's equal to the Republicans. Have you met any Republicans lately? <laughs> you want to go toe to toe? Do you want to stand on, on the side of, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene? I mean, I... so a little history here of Cornell. He worked hard to get Obama elected in 2008. Uh, but what did he call Obama once Obama was president? Oh, he called him many things, but a few choice ones that I quote in my piece. He is the black mascot of Wall Street oligarchs. He's a black puppet of corporate plutocrats. And maybe to me, the worst of all, he's afraid of free black men like Cornell, presumably, because of his partial white ancestry, which is such a bizarre racial essentialism. I don't even know how to describe it. And, you know, the Cornell West who calls everybody brother, you know, acts like he is just full of, of love and acceptance to talk about Obama like that. And then to go on and say, you know, there's nothing wrong. He's he's closer to a lot of our Jewish brothers and white brothers than he is to free black brothers. I mean, I, I don't know that that's true. And what you're insinuating is quite ugly and uh, ugly to all of the people involved. And so when he did that, I, that was 2011. I was critical of Obama. That's that's back when he was trying to do the grand bargain with John Boehner and Mitch McConnell. He put a lot of social spending at risk. He cut the knees out from under some of the stronger Democrats who were trying to negotiate. There was a lot to criticize, but in but those personal the personal invective was really disturbing. And he also tried to promote various alternatives to primary Obama. And, you know, Senator Sanders considered it, but to his credit, he didn't do it. He never did it. You mentioned black voters. Do you think older black voters in 2024 will remember what what Cornell said about Barack Obama? I think some of them will. And I think even those who don't, are not going to throw their votes away on a protest candidate. I mean, that's the thing. Black voters are the most pragmatic voters, and that's because they have the most to lose. So they tend not to take chances on symbolic candidacies uh, or protest candidacies. And they coalesced behind Joe Biden, partly because, you know, the dean, Representative Jim Clyburn of South Carolina vouched for, for Biden, uh, but also that they'd known Joe Biden. And while we associated him with the crime bill, with you know not treating Anita Hill very well and helping Clarence Thomas to get onto the Supreme Court, we had plenty of grievances. A lot of older Black voters were like, they know that history too. They're not dumb, but they thought he was the most likely to unite the country against Donald Trump. And I think they were right. Cornell 
has supported Bernie's campaigns in the Democratic primaries, which you and I think ended up being a very good thing for the Democratic Party. In the uh, presidential election of 2016, Cornell supported Jill Stein rather than Hillary against Trump. Do you think Jill Stein's candidacy pushed Hillary to the left? Uh, no, I don't think it had any impact whatsoever. But I do think that there's evidence that she drew enough votes in states like, you know, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, which tragically, unbelievably, Hillary Clinton lost. I think that her criticism of Hillary, as well as Cornell Wests and other other lefties of the of the time, were not only unfair to Hillary Clinton but but destructive. Uh, and you know, I would say my issues with him go back to when he supported Ralph Nader in 2000. And, you know, people can argue all day, all night, I have, about <laughs> whether whether Nader really cost Al Gore the presidency. And it was so close. I mean, really, he only lost by a few hundred votes. And maybe he won. That's a whole other thing in Florida. But there, there's no way that, that Nader did not play at least a small role. There were lot, lots of things played a role. But it was it was unconscionable to to trash Al Gore like he was the equivalent of George W. Bush. You know, I think that the people of Iraq would like a word with uh, <laughs> Cornell West and others. And, you know, people like Michael Moore, strong enough, had enough integrity to apologize for that vote. And my friends at the time who supported Ralph Nader, we had I was at Salon and we had a lot of spirited debate. Many of them apologized. It really wasn't very smart. It wasn't it really didn't see politics for what it was. It didn't see that, that the intransigence of the two party system, like it or not. Cornell West never apologized and he proved that he didn't regret it because he did the same thing with Jill Stein. Now and he's running against Biden as the candidate of something called the People's Party. What yeah. is the People's Party? Uh, it's a mess. It's a mess. And it's really attracted a lot of unsavory people. To my knowledge, it hasn't ever run a candidate. Not, not, not just it hasn't won an election. It hasn't run a single candidate. And it's maybe on the ballot in one state. Florida is the only state where the People's That's Party great. is on the ballot. That's great. That'll be really good. Um, so, I mean, in some ways, the People's Party barely exists, and yet Cornell announced that he is their candidate. It's a kind of a strange choice. A lot of other people, um, his friend Chris Hedges, the news this week is, is trying to get him to meet with the Green Party and perhaps enter primaries. The Green Party actually has primaries to pick their candidates. The People's Party... I has never had a candidate, so nobody knows how to pick a candidate. And and um, Amy Goodman asked him why he didn't run as a Green candidate. And he said, well, that's a discussion for another day. What do you think of the possibility that, that some people are suggesting that Cornell should run as the Green Party candidate, which is on the ballot in, I don't know, 30 states or something like that? Well, I am on record as not a big fan of the Green Party for the same reasons we've discussed regarding Nader and, and other bids where they basically take votes away from Democrats, meaning more importantly, help Republicans. But I think that that makes more sense since they have ballot lines, since they, they have an apparatus, they have been nominating candidates. I don't know why he wouldn't do that. I don't know who in the People's Party uh, reached out to him to get him to do this. But um, it's just a really 
suspect, dodgy organization with zero track record and no apparent uh, infrastructure. So why would he, I mean, I would just love to I would I don't really care enough to be quite honest, like, <laughs> and there's so much news, but I probably would read I probably would John read a little explainer on who the hell got Cornell West to do this, because as much as I think it's a terrible idea, I'm not their constituency. And it's probably it's by far the most news they've gotten since they, you know, were founded. And, yeah. uh, you know, Nina Turner was was somebody who spoke highly of them, but she didn't run as as a People's Party candidate when she ran for Congress twice in the last four years. She and ran- also also Marianne Williamson spoke at their one big event, but she's not running as a candidate of the People's Party. She's running in the Democratic primaries. Right. So even people who seem to support them and speak for them when they ran, Nina ran in a Democratic primary twice. She didn't win, but but that is what she did. And she would have gotten many fewer votes, I'm sure, if she had chosen the People's Party. And I'm sure she knew it. So another thing I should say about Cornell West, he's kind of a fan of some of DeSantis's moves around the curriculum. Um, He's on the board of a board of advisors of something called the Classic learning test, which right-wingers, for the most part, not exclusively, um, are pushing as an alternative to the SAT, which is, according to DeSantis, too woke, the college board too woke. Uh, And so Cornell West has also lent his name uh, to some organizations that are discrediting the very idea of critical race theory, that are peddling a return to the classics, uh, as opposed to a more diverse roster of uh, men and women of different cultures that ought to be part of our curricula in this day and age. It's very retro. It's very, it's very mysterious. Since the People's Party is only on the ballot in one state, what effect can Cornell West's campaign have? Very little, uh, practically, electorally, obviously, but it can and already has had the effect of fomenting the kinds of Democrats in disarray storylines that our lazy Beltway media thrives on. That, you know, oh, Joe Biden just has one more problem without people really digging deep into what is motivating Cornell West, what he's done to Democrats <laughs> over the years. Not a deep dive into either the People's Party or West, but just just another sad example of Joe's not going to consolidate the Black vote behind him. And anybody who says that, Black or white, I know that sounds arrogant, but I'm going to say it, doesn't know what they're talking about. Cornell West is going to draw proportionately, not just numerically, but proportionately more white votes than black votes, I promise you, if he ever gets that far. Joan Walsh, you can read her piece, Cornell West Should Not Be Running for President at thenation.com. Thanks, Joan, for talking with us today. Thanks, John. It was fun. You might think Republicans would take a breather after banning abortion in the states they control, 
going after trans kids, banning books about race, sex, and gender, also banning Art Spiegelman's mouse. But no, they've set their sights on a new target, no-fault divorce. For comment, we turn to Katha Pollitt. Of course, she's a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for the nation. She also has written for The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and The New York Times. And her most recent book is Pro, Reclaiming Abortion Rights. And earlier this year, she was a guest on The Daily Show on Comedy Central with Wanda Sykes. Katha, welcome back. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Well, you open your new column on no-fault divorce with what you call a fun story about a guy named Steven Crowder. I never heard of him, but I see that the Daily Mail calls him an online personality. Is that the way you'd describe him? That's how I describe myself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd never heard of Steven Crowder either, so don't feel bad about that. Okay. But the important thing about him is that he went viral for portraying himself as a victim of no-fault divorce. And he was shocked that his wife could just divorce him without his permission. Um, even, he said, in Texas. Uh, and this was shortly before a video emerged, in which, which also went viral, in which he berated his pre heavily pregnant wife for, uh, among other domestic failings, not being, quote, wife-worthy, unquote. Yeah. He was pretty mad. Um, and uh, I mean, everything you need to know about why we need no-fault divorce is in that little episode. And somehow in your column, you move from Steve Crowder to John Milton, who is not an online personality. <laughs> no, he certainly isn't. Uh, well, Milton, Milton is very interesting. Um, Milton was one of the first, if not the first, English writer to call for marriage to be not a religious sacrament that would be enforced and controlled by the church and the state, which was in obeisance to the church, but a civil partnership that unhappy spouses could end at will. And Milton knew whereof he spoke because he himself, this is in the 17th century, mind you, married a 17-year-old girl named Mary Powell, and he barely knew her, and he was 34. Um, and today we would call him some kind of a pervert, but back then it was very common. Um, and so she, after a few weeks, she left him and she stayed away for three years. And she should have, should have stayed away for longer, I might add, because she eventually came back and died in childbirth. Yeah. So, yeah. Very sad. Anyway. Well, uh, getting back to the present, uh, or at least to the last century, we, we know that American women got the vote in 1919. When did they get no-fault divorce? Well, it's interesting because the first no-fault divorce legislation in an American state was signed in 1969 by none other than Ronald Reagan. Then Governor of California. And divorced me, divorced husband. Um, and that, now it's the law in every state. But, you know, I should explain what no-fault divorce is because a yes. lot of people might not understand that. What it is, is it says that if the marriage has broken down, one person does not have to prove fault against against the other. It doesn't have to say, well, it's your fault because you were unfaithful or you were mean or you were whatever. So it's really a good thing because before 
no fault divorce, you were really stuck um, in your marriage, no matter how terrible it was, unless you could prove one of these things. And that led to a great deal of, in addition to other sorrows that we'll get to a minute, it led to uh, a lot of lying and falsification. I mean, you'll see mo- you know, movies where they set up the husband in bed with someone and then someone rushes in and takes a picture just because you needed to have evidence of infidelity, which was one of the permissible grounds. Um, so it was really a great thing. And it's terrible that the conservatives want to get, some conservatives want to get rid of it. Well, you say it's allowed in all states now, but I read that Mississippi and South Dakota allow no-fault divorce only if both parties agree to dissolve the marriage. And even though California uh, passed no-fault divorce in 1969, took New York State 40 years. New York State didn't get no-fault divorce until 2010. And I also learned that last year the Republican Party of Texas added language to its platform declaring, quote, we urge the legislature to rescind unilateral no-fault divorce laws and to support covenant marriage. What is covenant marriage? Well, covenant marriage is uh, the law in three states now, Arizona, Louisiana, and Arkansas. In these states, engaged couples can sign up for a system in which they agree to seek divorce only for a few handful of reasons. Um, And they basically promise to stay married forever and seek counseling and all that. Um, And what's interesting is that, and it shows you how popular no-fault divorce is, that this covenant marriage thing has been in existence for about a quarter of a century as an option, but only about 1% of couples today. Um, Now, ask yourself, if you are the parents of the bride or groom, would you want your child signing on to this? Say, I agree to be trapped forever in a loveless marriage to a terrible person. (laughs) I, I don't think so. Who is more likely to file for divorce now, men or women? Women. And women have been more likely to file for divorce for a very long time. Um, Now it's about two, it's more than two thirds. Um, We don't quite know why this is. For example, men leave a lot of things to women. So maybe they leave the filing of the divorce. (laughs) (laughs) You take care of it, honey. They've already moved in with their girlfriend, said, oh, let her settle it, you know, let her figure it out. Now, Jordan Peterson says the reason women file more, are more likely to file for divorce is because women are more neurotic than men. They're always looking on the negatives. <laughs> Let's say, uh, let me just emphasize, Jordan Peterson is a online personality, I believe. Well, he writes a lot of books too, but yeah, he's very online. So women are more neurotic. And then I add that given the sexist nature of most marriages, they've got a lot to be negative about. You've reviewed the research on the effects of no-fault divorce. What have scientists found? Well, it's really interesting. They were able to do this because of the long state-by-state rollout of no-fault divorce. So they could separate the effects of no-fault instituting no-fault divorce from other things. And what they found is that it led to dramatic decreases in suicide among wives, uh, decreases in domestic violence, and in murder of murders of wives by their husbands. Okay, no-fault divorce is a lot better for women. But what about the children? Nebraska 
In Nebraska, the Republican Party has declared that no-fault divorce should only be accessible to couples without children. Isn't divorce bad for the children? Well, you know, as a divorced person, with a divorced mother, I have to say, I don't think that's true. I think that there's a certain amount of evidence that children of, you know, where the marriage is ended do okay. Children in which a terrible marriage persists are not okay. I mean, it it can't be good to grow up in a family full of hostility and coldness and silence and rage and all the rest of it. Uh, you quote Jim Daly, head of Focus on the Family, saying, God hates divorce in every case. Does God hate divorce even when there's violence and cruelty? Yes. God hates divorce in every case. He means what he says. <laughs> okay. uh, the wife is supposed to fix the marriage. So uh, what, what exactly does God suggest wives should do to fix the marriage if their husband is violent or abusive or an addict, if they are not supposed to leave? Well, they should be super deferential. They should blame themselves. I mean, hey, they're two takes two, right? And give her husband lots of sex so he'll cheer up. <laughs> okay. Well, I've always assumed that born-again Christians would have significantly lower divorce rates than the rest of us because they know that God hates divorce and the family that prays together stays together. But is it correct that born-again Christians uh, have significantly lower divorce rates? No, actually, it is not. Born-again Christians have a 33% divorce rate, and atheists have a 30% divorce rate. So, you know, it's pretty comparable. But isn't this crusade against no-fault divorce really just the pet project of a few cranks? Don't a lot of right-wing uh, fanatics get divorced? They do. They do. So many. Um, most recently, Kellyanne Conway, Lauren Boebert, Sarah Palin, and Marjorie Taylor Greene. They've all gotten divorced. You know, so. I looked up the stories of each of their divor divorces because I was so interested in your column on this. Kellyanne Conway, of course, was Trump's campaign manager. And Oh, and uh, what about him? He got divorced several times. <laughs> I've heard about that, too. Uh, Kellyanne Conway's husband, George, hated and ridiculed Trump, but they didn't get divorced during the campaigns. They didn't get divorced until now. Lauren Boebert has a very wild story. She married her husband, I think it was as a teenager, even though he had exposed himself to teenage girls in a bowling alley and served time in jail for that. She dropped out of high school to give birth to their first child when she was 18, and they got married two years after that. And during that time, he was arrested on domestic violence charges after a fight with her. But she didn't divorce him for 20 years until now. Well, God hates divorce. <laughs> and Sarah Palin didn't want to get divorced, but her husband divorced her. She says marriage is so extremely important as the foundation of our nation. And Marjorie Taylor Greene also didn't initiate the divorce. She was sued for divorce by her husband, according to the Daily Mail, after media, she'd been married, they'd been married for 27 years. The Daily Mail says they, she, he sued her for divorce after media reports revealed she had repeatedly cheated with other men, including polyamorous tantric sex guru Craig Ivey. 
Wow. What's his phone number? <laughs> <laughs> uh, she, she, and there's a twist to this too. Marjorie Taylor Greene had originally filed for divorce against her husband in 2012, but then they reconciled. And then this year he sued her for divorce. So there's, you know, different strokes for different folks. Really? Well, the important thing is they had the freedom to do it. You know, I don't understand why anyone, including Republican men, would want a wife who doesn't want to be married to them. So what, what do you think is behind uh, this new Republican campaign to get rid of no-fault divorce? I think they want to feel in control, um, that if you can't leave a marriage, you're, especially for a woman, you're at a tremendous disadvantage. And I think that's what it's all about. They don't like the feeling that someone could walk out on them. Divorce has been an ordinary part of American life really since the 70s. So it seems very unlikely that there would be big changes in it now. Well, legal abortion was part of the fabric of life too since the 70s. And now it isn't. Katha Pollitt, you can read her new column for The Nation on the right-wing campaign against no-fault divorce at thenation.com. Thank you, Katha. Thank you, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.